Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey, this is Adam. This is Mike. And this is David. From Super Best Friends Video Game Sleepover. We make a fortnightly video game podcast. Fortnite means every two weeks. Covering gaming news, game reviews. I give it five out of five tacos. And whatever crazy audience tweets come in. And sometimes celebrities like Arnold even stop by to sing karaoke. Oh, I look just like Buzzy Each episode, we feature one burning topic, game dev interview, or super guest friend from the world of gaming. Check us out on the HP Video Game Podcast Network or on sbfvgs.com. I don't care about that. Wow. This show is part of the RetroZap.com Podcast Network. Did you know that ArtCast is on Patreon? Well, now you do. So go check out patreon.com slash ArtCast for ways to help out the show and get some sweet perks in return. It could be something small, such as our $1 tier to show your support, or you could join one of our higher tiers to get a shout-out, pick an episode topic, or even be a part of the show as a special guest. Even just sharing our show to your friends goes a long way. So once again, that's patreon.com slash ArtCast. Thanks for helping us, and keep it retro. What's up, Argonauts, and welcome to another Retro Gaming Podcast. This is episode 194 of the Rcast. I am your host, David Giltonen, and with me is someone who is a small wonder in their own right, Kelsey Lewin. How's it going there, Kelsey? Good. Thanks for having me on. I didn't realize you guys were getting so close to episode 200. That's awesome. We're getting pretty close there, yeah. We're not quite at 1,000 like how Gamertag Radio is, but uh, <laughs> we're slowly getting there for sure. So, uh, But yeah, in this episode, we are talking about the Wonder Swan, and I know that is, um, you know, aside from like obviously your husband and everything, uh, this is probably like your one console love anyway. Um, and since it's <laughs> Valentine's Day, it's so fitting in that sense too. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it's my favorite console in terms of like thinking it's the best console in the whole world. There's certainly consoles that uh, have better games and a better variety and everything, but it's absolutely my favorite console to talk about, and I think it's the most interesting console out there, so excited. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, before we get into that, though, we want to get into some news here, uh, and starting off with some news that you brought to my attention, actually, the Nintendo PlayStation, this fabled Nintendo PlayStation, uh, it is up for auction right now, and it's uh, causing quite a stir from what I'm hearing. <laughs> Yeah, and it looks like last I checked, it was at $350,000, which is uh, triple now what the last record-holding uh, single game item has sold for. That's where it's um, at the, now, yeah. Yeah, that, that's where it's at as of recording this podcast. Uh, so the Nintendo PlayStation, if you're not familiar, just a little bit of history. Uh, basically, Nintendo and Sony were going to be working together for a CD add-on. Nintendo didn't really think CDs were the future, so they kind of gave too much away in the negotiations and then started 
realizing that was a bad idea and backed out. But um, And then, of course, Sony went on to make the PlayStation instead of the Nintendo PlayStation. So it's, uh, yeah, it's one of, I believe people have reported that there were 200 prototypes made. Um, as far as we know, they've mostly been destroyed other than this one. Mm-hmm. And it's been kind of touring around the country for the last few years. It was discovered in some guy's attic um, from a Reddit post, which was pretty funny. Someone had like a, you know, today I learned there was a Nintendo PlayStation. Some guy was like, my dad has one of those. And I was yeah. like, yeah, right. Well, it turns out his dad did have one of those and now he's selling it. So <laughs> I'm sure he saw this in person too, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, Terry is the guy who's been kind of traveling around the country with it going That's to like the dad, various I believe, retro right? gaming expo. Yeah. And uh, he he's let people play it. He's let people touch it and hold it and everything. Uh, it's been taken apart and preserved about as well as it can possibly, you know, documented about as well as it can possibly be. Um, I'm sure there's still more that could be done, but, you know, we've, we've pretty much captured it as an object from a historical perspective. So I'm not too worried about it. And, uh, you know, we'll see where it ends up and what it goes for. He's turned down offers of a million dollars in the past. I don't know if, it's going to reach a million dollars in the open market here, but it'll yeah. be interesting to see there's still like 20 days left in the auction. So there's a lot of time for things to happen. I mean, I'm sure like things will heat up and ramp up for sure in the price uh, as we get like closer to, uh, to like the end of the auction anyway. And this is heritage auctions, by the way. It's not eBay. So right. I've seen a lot of people being like, well, I'm sure these are all just, you know, shill bids. And, and no, this is a, you know, heritage auctions is a, collectibles dealer and you know they have things in place for it's more controlled I guess. Yeah. yeah yeah you can't you can't just sign up and start bidding a million dollars they require you know social security number and hmm. um sometimes deposits even if you're a newer bidder so yeah so you can't have like your nine-year-old kid just like log in it's like all of a sudden start <laughs> bidding or anything so yes exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, so what's, what's like, I guess like the main drama, like around this, like what, like, what, like what has like people like up in a tizzy about it? A lot of people are contacting, you know, myself specifically, you know, the co-director of the video game history foundation. I think a lot of people are really upset that it's not going to an organization like ours or to the national video game museum in Frisco, Texas, or to the strong museum of play in Rochester, New York. Right. And it's okay. I'm trying to tell people it's okay because <laughs> if you have $350,000 that you want to put towards game preservation, oh my God, there's so many better things we could do with that money than owning this one piece of history. It's There's there's an absolutely infinite amount of work to get done. And, you know, so people have been like, are you guys going to crowdfund for it? Are you going to try to bid on it? Can I help you get it to a museum? You know, a lot of people believe it should be in a museum. And yeah, I mean, probably it should be, but... It belongs in a museum, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but for a museum, you know, for some for a big museum like The Strong... Uh, this is not going to bring them even $100,000 worth of more people in the door. You know what I mean? So they could Mm -hmm. spend $100,000 on it, but it's not going to benefit them $100,000 worth. So uh, especially considering that it's been fairly well documented and preserved, it's uh, it's not really worth it for most of these institutions. Now, if someone rich wants to buy it and donate it to a museum, 
that's lovely, but I don't think that that should be a crowdfunding effort, or I don't, I should say, I don't think it needs to be a crowdfunding effort. And if people are itching to crowdfund half a million dollars to give to an institution, to a museum or something like that, there's so many great things they could do right. with that money. So, uh, yeah, by all means, please <laughs> crowdfund <laughs> to give the strong or, you know, the video game history foundation or wherever we could do a lot with that money, but, um, we're okay without the Nintendo PlayStation. For sure, yeah. I mean, I know personally for me, I would love to see it in a museum of some sort just so people can, like, you know, go to a central location and be able to see it in person and all that stuff. Um, but, like, I'm not going to be, like, all up in arms, like, over, you know, that not being the case. You know, if there's, like, a personal collector who wants to have it in their collection, um, you know, they want to call it, like, their own, whatever. I mean, that's their prerogative, I feel like. So, um, it's, it's not like the end of the world, as you said. So, um, you know, so we'll see like on, on what happens, but it, it will be very interesting though, to see like how high that this auction goes, uh, as, uh, as the weeks go down. So, and, uh, something else Nintendo related here, uh, there's the Nintendo switch online service. Uh, they're adding in a couple new SNES and NES games here. Uh, and the SNES game certainly has the attention of a lot of, uh, retro enthusiasts here, uh, namely from the import scene, actually. Uh, since they're adding in Poppin' Twinbee and Smash Tennis, a couple of games that have never been stateside before. Yeah, that's pretty cool, and I love Poppin' Twinbee, so that's a that's a fun one to add. It's it's weird because you know I think it's upsetting some people that they're not the games that they remember. You know, the online service is still missing a lot of classics, mm. um, in some people's opinions. But I no, I think this is pretty cool. I think it's cool to bring some odd ones there. I don't know how often they're going to be played. I, I'm really curious to know if Nintendo keeps stats on that thing, like uh, on that kind of thing. If people, I'm sure they do, yeah. Yeah, if people are trying the new games or the weird games or not, or if they're all just playing Zelda. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm all for, honestly, for Nintendo adding in, like, you know, obviously having, like, your perennial classics in there, uh, along with, like, the more obscure titles, for sure. And, like, um, you know, and, and absolutely, like, having, like, the titles that have never been to the States before. I'm, like, all for that. Um, you know, I think it's great. Um, I like, you know, because I know for me, I have Pop and Twin B uh, on my SNES Classic. And, uh, you, know, it's, it's, you know, it's a really fun game. Uh, I know you can play co-op on it as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's definitely, like, a fun cute-em-up, if you will. Uh, in that yeah. genre, so um, and Smash Tennis, Smash Tennis uh, kind of intrigues me actually because I, I I figured that it was in the states, but I think I'm getting that confused with Super Tennis. Yeah, I I've never played Smash Tennis, and I don't think I've played any Super Nintendo tennis games, so this is a total wild card for me. Yeah, I mean, like it looks fun anyway, so I'm definitely go- going to check that out. And uh, the NES games that they have here as well are Shadow of the Ninja, which is kind of like a Ninja Gaiden esque sort of game. Uh, and then there's also Eliminator Boat Duel, which I am actually super excited to try out. Yeah, that's a fun one. I've, I haven't played Shadow of the Ninja. I only know it as a game, you know, everything in my head because I run a game store. Mm-hmm. A lot of the titles to me just immediately are like dollar signs. So I'm like, oh, well, that's like a $50 game. So that's exciting that people can play this. <laughs> How much is that worth? Now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, definitely look out for those games, though, in the uh, next Nintendo Switch Online update. And um, and speaking of Ninja Gaiden here, uh, there is also the developers of Blazing Chrome, uh, which is like the Contra-style game that came out not too long ago here. Um, One of the developers here actually uh, just brought it out there on Twitter, basically saying that he would like to make a proper Ninja Gaiden 4 in the 2D sense. So... Um, so this is pretty interesting. So he says here on Twitter, I hope one day after Moonrider Tecmo 
give me the Ninja Gaiden IP to create Ninja Gaiden 4. I'm not shitting. Ninja Gaiden 2 on NES was the game that made me like video games. And then he wow. follows that up with, not shitting, <laughs> that is a game I'll make. Ninja Gaiden 4. If I make it, I can die like a hero. So this is clearly a big goal for him. But uh, Kelsey, I was kind of curious if, uh, you know, if, if you feel like um, well, first off, if you, if you would like to see a Ninja Gaiden four in the same sense as like the first three games, uh, but also, do you feel like that that you know that like the general public would also like to see that too? I think it would do well. Um, I'm not a huge Ninja Gaiden fan myself, uh, personally. It's a little a, it's a little before my time, and B, I get frustrated easily. So it's pretty hard, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I think it would I think it would do very well. I can definitely see like a, a limited run games type thing picking it up to doing a nice you know, physical release that kind of with like a retro box and everything in it. So I think it would do well. Yeah. And um, I know there was like a lot of excitement too around the messenger, uh, which came out and, um, and you know, people were excited about it. Like the messenger. Yeah, but um, I because I, I know that there were like people like who were disappointed, I guess, with the Metroidvania aspect of it, and there wasn't so much like the straight linear Ninja Gaiden style type of action game. Um, so you know, like you know, I feel like people are definitely wanting you know you want to see more of that. And I know there is also like another game actually by Yacht Club Games, I think called uh, Cyber Shadow. Um, like where it is more of like the straight linear Ninja Gaiden style game. But um, yeah, I think there's definitely room for more Ninja games for sure, you know, so I'm all for that. And um, the last story that I want to get in here too is uh, Atari. Uh, so we're kind of starving for some news here on their VCS console that's, uh, you know, that's, that's coming out. And they did come out with some news I was going to say, here. we're still talking about this? We're still talking we're, about this. Um, we're still you know, believing it, this is happening? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it seems like it's still <laughs> happening anyway. At least, like, Atari's, like, kind of eking out some news here and there whenever, whenever they squeeze them out. But um, there is, like, some news here that they are planning to incorporate Wonder OS technology, uh, which will make the, uh, the, you know, which will make the, the Atari VCS uh, cross uh, like have like cross platform gaming basically, uh, so it'll like further expand the capabilities and uh, and reach of the system. So that's what they're, what they're looking at here. Um, so basically, well, wonder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so Wonder uh, is an innovative gaming company behind Wonder OS, uh, which is an Android based hybrid mobile gaming and entertainment platform. So. Um, so basically, you'll be able to play Atari VCS games, I guess, like on the go, or like they'll you know, have some sort of reach somehow. I'm not entirely sure how they're looking to implement that, but uh, Kelsey, obviously, you have your reservations about the Atari VCS, so it's kind of curious <laughs> to hear more your uh, more of your thoughts on that. At this point, I've just sort of given up, and I'm I'm just waiting for it to happen. If if it happens, then then I'll have an opinion then. But uh, you know, they've, they've they've pushed back and had radio silence for so long that it's just at this point it just kind of seems like they don't have the resources money or management to do anything they said they were going to do yeah and like management is definitely a key part of it too because uh, i know there was um i think it was like the main architect for the console i think he left the project in the middle of it so he wasn't getting paid yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, there's all this like drama like attached to it. And I certainly know my fair share of drama, like when it comes to like behind the scenes for consoles. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it's, it's definitely something that uh, we'll have to keep our eye on. And uh, like you said, see if it actually becomes a thing. So I definitely have my reservations about it as well. Um, but yeah, we'll wait and see on that. Welcome. And with that, we have What Are You Playing? What gets in the games we've all been playing or recently beat. So Kelsey, with you being our special guest, why don't you tell us what you've been playing? 
No, it's, it's funny, very fitting for this episode. I actually have been playing my Wonderswan a lot, which of is... Of course you have. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, normally I'm playing my Switch, right? Like, <laughs> I do go back to play the retro stuff, but it's usually not what I'm playing every night. Um, but actually, recently I've been um, just in a, a puzzle game kick and really want to... I've decided that I want to get really good at Gunpei, which is sort of like the... Uh, I would say like the flagship puzzle game for the Wonderswan. Mm. Um, and which is a game I thought I was pretty good at. And I was playing it, you know, for the first time in a while, um, a few weeks ago. And, you know, I, I got, I was playing until I got to a point where I lost and it was like D rank. I'm like, D rank, excuse me. <laughs> excuse me, princess. <laughs> so, yeah. So I've been trying to improve. I finally got a B rank the other day and that's, that's as far as I've gotten so far, but um, I'm, apparently trying to get good at puzzle games which isn't something i've ever tried to do before in my life like hmm. you know i like watching the tetris masters and stuff and being like wow that's yeah. impressive i don't ever want to try to learn how to do that but for some <laughs> reason like that, that d rank personally offended me and i need to show gunpei that i'm actually uh very good at that game um it's an interesting game it's like it, it's basically you have all these different lines that kind of show up on screen and you have to make all of these lines that are at different angles um, kind of go across the screen in one long continuous line or intersecting lines. You get more points for there being more intersections and more uh, more lines within the line, if that makes sense. It's very hard to, to talk about without visualizing. So yeah, and they just kind of start appearing faster and faster. And of course, it's got kind of like a puzzle bobble effect or whatever where you know the screen's kind of getting they're they're getting up to the top of the screen and then when they More when you reach a certain that, point yeah. They, yeah exactly so um so i've been playing a lot of that i've also been going back and trying to replay a couple games that i never got around to playing back in the day um and right now that's fantasy star 4 for some reason which is excellent i for mm. some reason i just wanted to play an old rpg and i'm really enjoying it yeah there's always time for some old RPG action, for sure. And uh, I definitely have one of my own here, uh, what I've been playing. Uh, but first off, uh, I, you know, I've, I'm still been playing through uh, the Shovel Knight DLC for King Knight. Uh, I believe it's called the King of Cards. Um, and yeah, it's definitely a lot of fun. It's just like, uh, you know, kind of like any of the other Shovel Knight DLC where you play as like another character in this case, and they have like their own abilities and all that. And King Knight's pretty great because he has this uh, very Wario-like skill set in a sense, like where he does like a shoulder charge and he, like bounces off of enemies. You can use that to keep bouncing off of like, you know, other enemies and other like objects and things like that. So it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, also like the, um, the actual like card game aspect of it uh, is a lot of fun too. So definitely highly recommend that. And uh, I also just started playing Final Fantasy VII on the Switch, actually. So this is in, in anticipation of the remake that's coming out very soon here in uh, in April. And uh, yeah, so this is actually the, the second time ever I'm playing Final Fantasy VII. First time was like ages ago, but um, but yeah, it's, it's just kind of funny going back to that. You know, again, kind of like an older RPG style, but um, you know, definitely one that is uh, that still holds up today. I think so. I'm trying to decide if I should play Final Fantasy VII like the the PlayStation 1 version again before the remake comes out or not. Because I never finished it when I was a kid. Oh, um, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I played through enough of it, and of course I know all the spoilers and everything, but like, sure. I yeah, it just I never quite got to the end and just moved on to another game or whatever happened. But um, yeah, so I'm like, uh, do I play the original one first before this remake comes out? Because I do want to play the remake. 
Yeah, I mean, like, the remake is a lot of fun from what I have played, because uh, I played it during PAX West, and it is impressive, to say the least. <laughs> like, it is, it is really, really amazing what they're doing with that game. Um, and I, I remember, like, when I first played through Final Fantasy VII, like, it didn't, like, super wow me or anything, but, like, this was, like, you know, after it had, all like, all of its hype and all that stuff, like, I didn't play it when it, when it originally came out or anything, um, you know, so, like, I, you know, I, I guess I didn't have that, like, nostalgic love for it in the, to begin with, uh, but it's, um, it's definitely a good RPG, for sure, like, I, I just don't consider it to be, like, the end-all, be-all best or anything like that, but, uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's definitely a lot of fun, though, it's definitely one of the better ones out there, I would say. So uh, definitely check that out. So, uh, but like a game here that you could play today actually is Azure Saga Pathfinder Deluxe Edition for Switch. This is the game code I have. So uh, immerse yourself in a world with a classic storyline that will delight both veterans and new RPG fans. Infused with highly detailed 2D illustrations and traditional turn-based RPG gameplay inspired by the classic JRPGs of the 90s. Join a young scientist, Sink, as he travels across the galaxy to meet new companions and find his father. So if that sounds like a jam, definitely jump on this. Again, this is a switch code. The code is C025KDJ59DLPJCR. Again, that's Azure Saga Pathfinder Deluxe Edition on Switch. Enjoy, and if you do redeem that, definitely let us know at our podcast on Twitter. Welcome back to the Stage of History. And with that, we have the Stage of History, which is a celebration of retro titles that deserve a spot, for better or for worse, in the pantheons of history. So I figure since we are talking about Wonderswan games, uh, we'll talk about one of the games that uh, certainly had a lot of people hyped up uh, to try it out, is Final Fantasy IV. So this is a 1991 RPG by Square. It was initially released as Final Fantasy II in North America. It introduced the active time battle system, which was used in the next five games in the franchise. And a remake for the Wonder Swan Color was released in 2002 with graphically enhanced character sprites and backgrounds with heightened details and color shading. So uh, this is a Final Fantasy game I haven't personally played myself. Uh, oh, really? I, I think it's my favorite, actually. Yeah, I know it's a lot of people's favorites for sure. Um, I, I've never really been like the biggest Final Fantasy guy in general, but um, this is one I've always wanted to just kind of like, you know, you know, check out and actually play through. Um, but yeah, since it's one of your favorites, though, uh, you know, I'm guessing you play this on the Wonder Swan as well, right? I have not played it on the Wonder Swan because, uh, as you might know, the Wonder Swan is a Japanese console, so it's entirely in Japanese. That's and right. You don't get yeah. a whole lot out of a JRPG when you don't understand the language. So, uh, <laughs> I, have, I actually the first time I played it was on the PSP, uh, and I think it's if it's not the same version, it's a very very similar version. It also has kind of a, you know, some enhanced shading and graphics and stuff on the PSP version. I might have to actually play them to compare, but. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it's a. To me, it's kind of like the quintessential Final Fantasy. You know, it's got like all of the all of the tropes that the games have sort of forgotten now, like crystals and stuff. You know what I mean? There's there's kind yeah. of the classic uh, Final Fantasy feel to it. And um, you know, I, I obviously I didn't play it when it came out, um, so maybe that's kind of a thing that feels unique to me like oh it's a for me it was coming it was like a return to the basics playing it but for someone who played it when it came out it was just no this is just what they are but i think it's a really it's got a really good story and good characters and uh yeah it's an interesting one and i'm sure the wonder swan version is wonderful but <laughs> i don't 
don't read enough Japanese to be able to get through an RPG. So yeah, that's kind of the tough thing if you're going to like a Japanese RPG that's not localized. I mean, like it's gotta be tough to go through it. But um, I guess like if you've played through like the English version like enough times, you could still kind of like eke your way through it. You know, if you know like where the placement is, like for all the menus and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, that's definitely one I wanted to like try out at some point. But um, yeah, there's definitely other Final Fantasies and just other like RPGs. Really, I still have to kind of catch up with myself as well. So. And um, we normally have Obscura as well, but since Robert is not here, we're not doing Obscura. But Robert did provide me with his uh, movie review uh, impressions here of uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. So the new Sonic the Hedgehog movie just came out. Yeah, so uh, so, you know, so so Robert got an early screening basically of it, and uh, you know gave his impressions. So here you go. Hey guys, Robert Workman, DCD with you here. Uh, I want to apologize for not being on this week's show. I'm actually in San Francisco attending an event for a couple of upcoming games that we are going to be discussing on a future episode. I do assure you I'll be back at full strength the following week, and of course I'll be at PAX East. But in the meantime, I wanted to leave you with a nice little uh, bonus nugget here. Uh, Over the weekend, I was invited to see Sonic the Hedgehog. That is the new big screen movie from director Jeff Fowler, of course, based on the classic Sega character and franchise of the same name. Now, of course, love people are a little nervous about how video games movie turn out you know either you can get something really cool like mortal Kombat, or something really awful like the second tomb raider movie i was gonna say super mario brothers the movie but i kind of like that in its own stupid way but here is the question does sonic the hedgehog live up to the super speed hype well uh first let's take a look at what's different from the game and that is pretty much uh, everything kind of i mean we get an introduction to sonic when he's in his uh in his uh old school world and then he comes to earth i won't say how that kind of goes into spoiler territory but we do get a hint of what green hill zone originally looks like before he goes to the city of green hills montana which was a nice little shout out to the game i guess aside from that you know dr robotnik shows up with his little robotic army that's in in line with the games and then you see like how the rings play a part uh, again i won't go into spoiler territory but you will see how those actually make a difference here and why sonic really likes to collect them all so that gives you an idea the story uh, the story is pretty good but it does have some lapses in logic the first uh real question is why would the government hire dr robotnik if he is like this super evil genius because he's the only one that knows how to deal with the robotech because you know he's the only one that can investigate you're telling me that like the government didn't have like a whole tech team that could investigate this matter yeah okay also it really seemed that james marsden's uh tom character who's the sheriff um seemed really agreeable with uh, attending alongside Sonic. Probably the main reason for that is because his dislike for Robotnik, as you saw in one of the trailers, he decks him pretty good when he comes in the house with a drone. I mean, so, I mean, some light things here and there, but for kids, it's really fun, so I'm not going to pick on that too much. What I will pick on a little bit here is a little bit uh, heavy on the commercialism. <laughs> I, I couldn't help but notice, like, you know, the Olive Garden stuff was a, a, a bit much because uh, <laughs> they even say, when you're here, you're family at one point in the script. I'm like, yeah, they really wrote that in there. And then, like, there was a shout-out to Zillow in there. I'm sure there was an advertisement for a truck when it wasn't getting fried to smithereens, obviously. But um, it it did go a little over the top there in terms of that. But it does lead to a nice little joke later on in the film that I won't spoil. So, eh, I don't mind it. And now let's get to the good parts of the movie. And the first one is the Sonic redesign. I am glad that Fowler and his team decided to redesign Sonic because, I don't know, this movie would have thrown me off if they kept the original weird teethy five-finger hand design that they had instead of the traditional one here. The traditional one really looks good, and they did a great job with the effects, and he looks 
just like his classic self. And I think that's going to be great news for those of you who love Sonic Inside Now. Not to mention the fact that Ben Schwartz makes a terrific Sonic the Hedgehog. He nails the voice pretty much perfectly. Although, you know, Roger Craig Smith is still, you know, he's still amazing when it comes to his work in games. But Ben does a great job of grasping what makes Sonic Sonic. And, you know, the dialogue does get a little, little weird at times, but not to the point where it's like, oh, come on, it's just Sonic. You know, we, 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 we accept it. And Ben does a great job uh, really embodying that into his character. And, you know, if there is a sequel, I'd love to hear more of them. I, I really would. Um, and I'm pretty sure there will be, considering the, the success this movie is more than likely to make. Um, next up is Jim Carrey as Dr. Robotnik. Yeah, I mean, some people say he does overdo it a little. I mean, it's, it's Jim Carrey. This is classic Jim Carrey, but that's the good news. This is classic Jim Carrey. He's back to a manic self. I mean, not that his serious stuff isn't great. I mean, the Truman Show and, and his other stuff can be good, but we like Jim Carrey for Jim Carrey. And here he definitely hands it up the best way possible as Dr. Robotnik. He really embodies what makes his character such an oddball villain. And, you know, and by the end, you, you're really grinning from ear to ear when he just really gets into that character. So he does a good job as well. Um, and then, of course, you have James Marsden from X-Men fame. He plays the Sheriff Tom. You have Tika Sumter, who plays his wife. Uh, she's good in it too. Some of the characters weren't really, you know, necessary. Like I, I could have done without the annoying sister-in-law. I won't get into that too much, but overall the, the cast was really pretty well done. Again, I won't really spoil a lot of the surprises here, but Sonic does get his trademark shoes at one point, And when they're given to him, they're pretty cool. And there are other things that pop up, especially at the end. I will not spoil this, but stick around through the mid credits and you'll like what you find. Overall, what do I think? Well, the effects are very good. Um, the performances are top-notch, especially Ben Schwartz and Jim Carrey. The commercial isn't quite back down a little bit, or at least draw a Sega Genesis or a Sega Saturn. D does Tom have a Sega Saturn? Just wondering. And, uh, you know, aside from slight lapses in logic, the, the story moved on breezily and had a lot of laughs. I mean, this movie was made with kids in mind, but it's also stuff that adults, I think, will enjoy as well. In short, uh, it nails the essence of Sonic for the most part. It does kind of ham it up in some places and doesn't make sense every once in a while or whatever, but there is a lot of stuff to here that I think you guys will enjoy. Is it the best video game movie you've made? Nah, that's still like Mortal Kombat to me because that's always something that, you know, matches the material and still has fun in its own right. But this is a fun movie. I think you guys will have a good time with it, especially if you're Sonic the Hedgehog fans. So I definitely give it my thumbs up. Uh, I'll let David watch it for himself and everything, and I'm sure Kelsey's probably already seen it as well. So yeah, uh, that is my movie review. Like I said, I will be back next week on our podcast, so don't miss me too much, guys. I'll see you next time. Keep it retro. Hello and welcome everyone, my name is Vaughn Hyde. I'm the host of IndiePod, an indie games podcast. With the help of my illustrious co-host, the biggest of average Josh Boys, we bring you all the indie games news you need to know, as well as shouting out some amazing indie games over on crowdfunding sites and occasionally derailing to a conversation about big anime chesticles. We are so happy to be part of the HP Video Game Podcast Network alongside so many other awesome gaming podcasts. So if you love indie games, make sure to listen in each and every Friday. So now we're going to go into our main topic, which is looking back on the Wonder Swan. So uh, I figure we'll go into like a little bit of history with you here, Kelsey, uh, in regards to like how the Wonder Swan uh, came to be, and um, you know, and, and also like you know how it ranks in Gunpa Yokoi's legacy as well. Uh, since obviously, like you know, he's you know he's been known for like you know working with like Nintendo, like from the very beginning with like Game Boy and all that stuff. But the Wonder Swan was kind of like his swan song, if you will. Yeah, well, certainly because it happened after his death. So, 
Um, well, okay, so Gunpei Koi is someone that I'm a big fan of just from like a design perspective. I think a lot of what he brought to Nintendo sort of drove even what they're still about today, a lot of his design philosophies. Um, Gunpei Koi was hired back before Nintendo did any video games, um, back when they were, I mean, I would say they were technically a toy maker by then, uh, but they were still mostly a card maker. And he was an electrical engineer and he was hired to do maintenance on the machines and just kind of keep everything running smoothly and um, you know do repairs and, and that sort of thing. But everything ran fairly smoothly, so his job you know, he had some downtime in his job. So he was a tinkerer um, his whole life. I Actually, there's a really great biography that's not in English, unfortunately, um, <laughs> about his life. And, uh, you know, he described himself as a, a tinkerer, someone who just was kind of always fitting things together and trying to make new weird devices, even as a kid and everything. So he got some pieces of wood together and he made one of those extendable arm things, which we we see now, but at the time, I guess, wasn't really, hadn't been made into a toy yet. Um, so this was the Ultra Hand, and he was just kind of playing around with it. He wasn't trying to make a product or anything. He was just literally tinkering in his free time. Um, but it got noticed, and he was asked to, you know, he's like, well, let's make this into a toy. They produced it. It was Nintendo's first, like, big hit toy. They sold it for, like, 500 yen, um, which, you know, this was the late 60s so that was worth a little bit more than five dollars back then but right <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it was nintendo's first big hit toy and from then on he just started kind of being involved in uh, making a lot of the toys he made a lot of their other hits like during the rubik's cube uh, craze he made something called the 10 billion barrel um, which was a just another kind of handheld puzzle toy um, that did really well in japan um and then, of course, his first like big electronic hit was the Game & Watch. Um, and he has this philosophy that you'll hear about a lot if you study his life um, called lateral thinking with withered technology. And what this means is rather than trying to stay on the cutting edge of technology and providing you know, the best possible, most technologically advanced experience, um, taking old obsolete tech that's way cheaper and finding a creative use for it that can kind of push it above some of the more cutting edge technology. Is that the Japanese MacGyver, I guess, in that sense? So. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of my favorite examples of this is he has this toy called the Lefty RX. So um, RC cars were really big in Japan for a while and uh, they were expensive to make. So for Nintendo to compete in this market, he came up with the Lefty RX, which is an RC car that only turns left. And he was able to cut costs by about 45% by doing that. Wow. Um, meaning that Nintendo could sell their very nice RC cars for way cheaper than all of the competition. So it did really, really well. Um, and yeah, all he did was like, it doesn't need to turn right. You're going around a track. It's always going to be turning left anyways, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it fair to say also that like Gunpei's like philosophy kind of became Nintendo's philosophy really in terms of like, you know, how they like make their products and like in terms of um, not necessarily cutting corners, but like, you know, finding cost cutting ways to get products out to people, but like at a much cheaper rate. Absolutely. I mean, it's, that's still the case today, but, you know, especially in the early days with the Game & Watch, which was basically a calculator, you know, that was used in calculator technology, right. um, and the Game Boy, which was, I mean, like, 
so much technologically worse, quote unquote, right, than like the Game Gear or the Lynx. Um, it didn't have color, it didn't have a lit screen, um, all of these things. And people, you know, at first they they were kind of worried about it and they were laughing at it a little bit. They're like, how can they, how can Nintendo possibly compete with the, you know, this color screen that's lit up and it looks so nice and everything. And then it turns out people would rather just pay $90 instead of $200 or right. whatever for something <laughs> that doesn't die in an hour and a half and has really nice, just crisp games. They don't need to, they don't need to see Sonic in blue or whatever. Like it's okay <laughs> if things are in black and white. Um, or spin a screen in, the, in this case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, he even has a, a, a quote in, um, in this book I read that's like, people are going to identify an apple as an apple, even if it's black, or people are going to identify a snowman as a snowman. Like it doesn't have to be the right color or the right, uh, it doesn't have to look realistic for people to interact with it and understand what it is. Um, and so, yeah, that is still absolutely a driving philosophy of Nintendo. Um, and I mean, really it's just, it's his legacy at Nintendo is this, this way of thinking that they don't have to make the next, you know, $600 console or whatever, which, you know, we're, <laughs> we're hearing the news this morning that the new PlayStation five might cost $500 or more, um, based on yeah. cost, which like, makes well, sense for like new consoles, like nowadays anyway. So, yeah. yeah. But I mean, the switch was $300 yeah. and then, and, and you know, the switch is sort of, pulling away from this maybe a little bit. Um, no, not really. It, it's less obvious now. It was a lot more obvious when you have something like the Game Boy where it's like, well, the competitors have a color screen that lights up <laughs> right? Um, and we're doing black and white with no light. Um, but, you know, I mean, they did do like the GameCube, which was a very technologically advanced console at the time. And it did horribly. The GameCube mm -hmm. is one of Nintendo's worst selling consoles of all time. So, um, yeah, I mean, they, they really do still subscribe to this philosophy. So, um, Yukoi went on to create, you know, he did, he did the Game Boy, he did the Game & Watch. Um, he also, you know, infamously did the Virtual Boy. That's kind of a whole thing I won't get into. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> he made Rob, too, I know. Yeah, and and a lot of and a lot of toys, a lot of Nintendo's like uh, light gun technology and that sort of thing. That was um, pre like the NES and everything. Nintendo was uh, using light guns to like a, a lot of success, both uh, as home toys and also in like light gun arcades. Um, and that was sort of a joint thing between him and uh, Masayuki uh, Uemura, who is considered the father of the Famicom. So. Mm. Um, he was actually a salesman from Sharp who was pitching this like photo, photo cell technology that was used in the, uh, in the light guns. And then they were like, you should come work for us instead. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and then his last sort of thing he did at Nintendo before leaving, um, you know, following the failure of the virtual boy was he kind of, he put out the Game Boy Pocket. Right. And then yeah. he left and he started his own company uh, called Koto Laboratories, which is still around today. Um, and Koto is a small electronics, like a creative small electronics studio. Um, they work with Bandai, they work with um, Benice and some other companies, and they make mostly like uh, kind of Tamagotchi sized electronics, um, little puzzle games and that sort of thing. Um, but Bandai approached them 
uh, after he founded this company and was like, we want to make a system. And so the the Wonderswan um, came out in 1999. Unfortunately, Gunpei Okoye uh, was killed in a car accident in 1997 before this could be realized. Um, it was kind of a freak accident too, right? Because like, wasn't it like um, he like rear-ended like a truck or something like that? And then when he got out of the car, that's when he got hit by like another yeah, car he or was, something? Yeah, he was in a minor accident and he stepped out of the vehicle and then was killed by an oncoming car. That's crazy, yeah. So yeah, very... Very, very sad, and um, honestly, you know, he was sort of out of the, like the Wonder Swan was was the game industry, but I think Koto's legacy is really more of just a small electronics dealer. So I don't know how how different the game industry would be if he was still around, but um, you know, it it makes you think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But the Wonder Swan, so the Wonder Swan came out in 1999. It was like you said, it's a, a swan song. It was in many ways extremely similar to the Game Boy. Uh, definitely full utilization of that lateral thinking with withered technology. It had a monochrome screen, which allowed it to be dirt cheap and last for 10 hours on one AA battery. Um, so that was a pretty big, it was a pretty big plus. You know, of course there were more uh, technologically advanced systems out on the market, uh, but if you wanted just to play some puzzle games or a couple platformers or even an RPG, uh, you know, if you could get a Wonderswan for like 50 bucks and some games were, you know, the games ranged from like 30 to 40 bucks for the most part. And so it was, it was cheap and you could, you know, that screen looks nice. It's just like the original Game Boy. You can absolutely see what's, you know, you can see the contrast on it and everything and it, it works. Is it kind of comparable to the screen on the Game Boy Pocket as well? Uh, I would say so. I think it has less ghosting, but the because it's Bandai, they have a lot of uh, like anime and Gundam type IP. So the system is full of that sort of thing. Um, so there's a lot of like, let's see, there's a bunch of One Piece games. There's a bunch of Digimon games. There's Inuyasha. There's uh, you know, like but I said, a hundred Gundam games. It's yeah. So you have a lot of like pretty strong. Uh, IP backing this system, which definitely helped it because, you know, it, no one's going to buy just because a, a system is cheap doesn't mean it's going to sell. Look at like the Watara right. Supervision. That was a there's really no Mario game. or Zelda or anything like that to attach to it either. So sure. But at the time, um, this was kind of following the whole fallout between Square Enix and Nintendo with the uh, Nintendo 64 launch and Square Enix kind of going with Sony instead. So um Nintendo wasn't mad, or Nintendo was pretty mad at Square Enix. They didn't want to work with them. So instead, Square Enix went over to the Wonderswan. And so you have all of these incredible RPGs that came out for the Wonderswan. Um, you have Final Fantasy 1, 2, and 4. Um, 3 was planned, but is unreleased. Uh, you have Ark the Lad. You have, um, oh gosh. I'm struggling to think of what else because there was also some. Was there uh, like a front mission uh, game that came out, or like something like a front mission game? Like there's like yeah, there's other a front, like there's like... a front mission as well. So yeah, I mean they had a very good relationship with Square Enix, um, making the library like actually pretty strong for RPG enthusiasts, which is definitely a huge plus for them. Um, and the Wonderswan, you know, despite never leaving Japan, it did fairly well. It captured like a good. 10 to 15% of the market share over there. And, you know, when you're competing against Nintendo, that's pretty significant. Um, so it's, you know, it, it kind of becomes like a, 
if you want to compare it sales wise to something, it's like Game Gear ish. You know, it's like yeah. most people. Rem- if you're if you ask a random person in Japan, most people remember the Wonder Swan, but they probably didn't have one. But they probably had a friend that had one. You know, like <laughs> they it worked over there. It did okay. There were three revisions of the Wonder Swan. Um, the first one was the monochrome one. They later released the Wonder Swan Color, which is exactly what you think it is. It's a Wonder Swan with color. Um, and kind of like the Game Boy, two Game Boy Color thing, there were games that uh, like worked on both. Worked yeah. only in the Wonder Swan Color and some games that worked on both, but the mm-hmm. Wonder Swan Color could play all of them. Um, and then finally, they upgraded it for the last time with something called the Swan Crystal, um, which is really just a color with a better screen. Um, mm. And it's kind of the, the preferred way to play of people who are into the Wonder Swan. Makes sense, yeah. Um, so I was kind of curious, uh, like in your opinion anyway, like what makes the Wonder Swan special compared to other handhelds at the time? And basically, like just to kind of like frame it, uh, like in the era anyway for people, uh, the other handhelds that were out around that time were the Game Boy Color and the Neo Geo Pocket Color as well. For me, what makes the Wonder Swan special, uh, first of all, you've got that lateral thinking with withered technology that that part's cool, of course, makes it a little bit different than some of the other handhelds out there. But one of the biggest things is the two orientations you can have it in. So you can play some games vertically and other games horizontally. So for something like a shooter, like a vertical shooter, this is an awesome use of the Wonder Swan, right? Like you can have this long skinny screen for a vertical shooter or for a puzzle game where you need like a vertical kind of space to work in. and so a lot of games took advantage of that. And that's really cool. I just think that's an interesting way of um, allowing developers kind of a little bit more freedom in what they're able to design. And speaking of which, uh, the other really incredible thing is that the Wonderswan had a consumer dev kit. It's called the Wonderswan, or sorry, the Wonder Witch is made by a company called Qute, Q-U-T-E. And you could, you could just buy this. You could buy a consumer dev kit and it sort of birthed like an indie scene in the handheld space, which to my knowledge is really the first time that could happen, at least on like a large scale. You know, anyone could buy this and you could even order cartridges from Qute and you could print your game on a cartridge, which is just I mean, that's just the coolest thing. I think I actually saw this, too, at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, too. It was really yeah, incredible. so they ran competitions for this thing. They ran something called the Wonder Witch Grand Prix for three years. Um, and for the first two years, the top prize got a full retail release of their game. So that's two of the most expensive Wonder Swan games now, uh, Judgment Silver Sword and Dicing Knight. Judgment Silver Sword is a really cool uh, vertical shooter. And Dicing Knight is kind of like a Zelda-esque, but randomized dungeons. It was really cool that it was kind of so open and and available for anyone to tinker with. Um, People were making tools for it. Um, I recently discovered, and I've been trying to track this down and track down the author of it, um, because Cute would, during these competitions, they would let anyone download these games that were submitted. Mm -hmm. And if you owned a Wonder Witch or Wonder Witch player, you could actually put these games, you could download them from your computer and put them on a cartridge and just play them. Um, Now the Wonder Witch cartridges are function a little bit differently than normal Wonder Swan cartridges. So you couldn't like print games and sell them really. I mean, I guess you could, but it would be really, really expensive and not a good idea. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, so you could, you could download these games from Cute's website, which is just 
the coolest thing. So it's this huge indie scene, basically. Uh, but I recently discovered that someone made an NES emulator for the Wonderswan during one of these competitions. And wow. because of the nature of that, they didn't they obviously didn't post that one on their website. Right. So I've been trying to track down the author because I think that's just like the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> now, um, is there still like an indie scene on the Wonderswan consoles as well? Because obviously you still have people who will make like NES games or SNES games or whatever. Um, but I, I would imagine that this would make it like easier for people even today to make Wonderswan games, right? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm sure there's at least somewhat of a scene. It's hard because this is a Japanese system, and so it's really a, a Japanese space in right. like there's not really Americans working on Wonderswan games. Um, as you know, there's there may be a couple oddballs, but for the most part, that scene would be localized entirely in Japan. So yeah, I'm sure there's still some like i still see chatter about it online occasionally but i mean it was a it was fairly big for a while which i think is really cool that's awesome yeah um so obviously as you mentioned there like there were there were like three different versions of the wonder swan with like you know with, with like the original game the wonder swan color and the swan crystal um so in your mind like what would be like the must own games to own on the wonder swan like across the board Oh, sure. Let's see if I can uh, come up with a bunch off the top of my head here. So my favorite is a game called Rhyme Rider Karakon. Um, it was made by the same guy who did, like, Vib Ribbon. Mm. Um, yeah, so it is a it is a musical... Um, rhythm game know, kind of you, thing. What, yeah, what, what, is that, what is that genre even? I mean, it's a rhythm game, but it's not like a DDR-type rhythm game. Right. It's a rhythm game where you're going over obstacles and stuff to the beat of the music. Yeah. So, um Really, really fun game. It's a tough one if you don't have the manual because the manual tells you what each button does. And I don't think it actually tells you that anywhere in the game. So you'll want to at least look up the manual if you pick that one up. <laughs> That's in Japanese um, that too, wonder- I imagine, right? <laughs> yeah, but it's it's got like images. You'd be able to figure it out. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So it's that one's a Wonderswan color game, so you will need a color or crystal to do it. Um, I should say, by the way, if you're just kind of like Wonderswan curious rather than wanting to get all the <laughs> way into it, uh, I would start with just a regular monochrome Wonderswan because you can get those for like 25 to 35 bucks. Um, and there's several games that you can start yourself off with that aren't color exclusive games. Um, to see if you like it or if you're just kind of like, oh, that was interesting. Okay. And then put it away forever. Everyone gets a little Wonder Swan curious every now and then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so I'm actually going for a full set. I don't know if you know that, but that I am not much of a collector anymore these days. I was a huge game collector. and I I've saw your pictures of, online too, like where you're like collecting like the different consoles and stuff. Yeah, my, my collection sort of stagnated for the last year and a half, with the exception of the Wonderswan, I am going for a full set. So um, I am at 135 games, according to my app that I just pulled up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's about, and I, I haven't gone through, so Wikipedia says there's 203. I know they're wrong because there's at least three on that list, or there's at least three that aren't on that list. Uh, but I haven't gone through and figured out how many they're missing maybe they're only missing three but i anticipate they're missing like you know if they're missing three why are they're probably missing like seven you know <laughs> so just over 200 basically yeah yeah it's a little over 200 is the point um all right i'm gonna go through my collection real quick and tell you what you should play though sure yeah. let's see um Okay, one of my favorite puzzle games is a game called tane omaku tori it's a game about kind of getting a drop of water 
down through this puzzle maze to water a plant. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> it's yeah. It's, puzzle games are hard to explain. Yeah. <laughs> you ever tried to explain a puzzle game? <laughs> anyway, um, and Gotcha is another really good one. It's also sort of a puzzle game. You're in this like, uh, you're in this grid, and you have two or three or whatever um, entities that all move in a pattern. So like, for instance, if you move uh, and you have to get them to like a goal. So if you move the one that you're controlling to the right, the other guy will go to one square to the left or something like that. Um, and it gets more complicated than that, but okay. um, that's a really fun one. Um, I was talking about Gunpei earlier. There are like three versions of Gunpei. You can totally just do the first one. Um, that one's for the original Wonder Swan and is great. Um, but they also did do Gunpei EX, which is like the color version. <laughs> um, and uh, Tari no Panda Gunpei, which is Gunpei with pandas. So. <laughs> nice, okay. <laughs> um, what else we got here? Uh, Makaimura, which is Ghosts and Goblins on the Wonder Swan, is really cool. There's some like vertical sections to it, which is kind of kind of interesting. Um, there's a Klonoa game on the Wonder Swan. There's several Mega Man games on the Wonder Swan. How is that Klonoa game, by the way? I think it's actually I I, I don't want to say this for sure, but I think it's pretty identical to the Game Boy Advance one. It's just in black and white. Hmm. Okay. So it's uh, it's Klonoa Moonlight Museum, and I think that's what that one's called in the Game Boy Advance one is called in Japanese too. So I think they're at least similar, but uh, I haven't played the Game Boy Advance one enough to tell you for sure. Mm. There's a pretty fun shooter called Run Equals Dim or Run Dim, but it's like Run Equals Side equal sign <laughs> Tim. <laughs> That's a pretty fun one. It is pricey, though. Actually, a lot of the ones I'm saying are kind of pricey. Unfortunately, Wonders 1 is not a very cheap console to collect for because it was not a crazy uh, successful yeah. console. It's kind of the rare side, yeah. Yeah. there's a, If you like any of the Ninja Jajamaru games on like Famicom, uh, there's a Jajamaru game on the Wonders 1, Ganso Jajamaru-kun, and it's great. And I don't know. Let's. I'm. I'm just kind of scrolling now. Like, is there something I'm missing? But those are those are my favorites. Oh, the Mr. Driller on Wonder Swan is fantastic. Oh, Mr. Too. Driller, right? Yeah, yeah. I was like surprised to see that on there. Actually, yeah. There's like some like surprising yeah. games on there, like Golden Axe as well. You know, the play on the Wonder yeah. Swan. Yeah. Oh, beat, yeah. There's Beat Mania. Beat Mania is really good on the Wonder Swan. It oh. even has like a little um, kind of turntable-y looking attachment thing. Oh, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> If you like fighting games, there is a One Piece fighting game on the Wonder Swan called One Piece Swan Coliseum. Mm. See, like that actually reminds me because there were like the Guilty Gear Petite games that actually caught my eye. So I don't know if you got to play those at all. I actually haven't played those. I don't own either of them. Um, it's it's definitely like one of the weirder things that I'm missing. I feel like I should probably have those. But <laughs> um, oh, you know what though? I did just win a win an auction that has one of them in them. So oh, okay. if you're curious, I'll tell you later. All right, that all right? <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, we also have some listener responses here. Uh, so I'm sure there'll be like some more games out that'll catch your eye here, Kelsey. So uh, starting off with our friend here, Andre Tipton. Uh, he says, "I loved mine. I got a good deal on a crystal. I had." like 10 games for it the ones i really wanted were extremely rare and expensive i had fun with it so uh just like how we were saying before about how rare and expensive they are yeah there's i mean there's a lot you can pick up for cheap but then most most of the ones that are especially good um and 
I would say English friendly. Mm. <laughs> um, a lot of the English friendly ones are going to be on the more expensive side. Unfortunately, it has gotten more expensive to collect for in the last few years. So for sure. I, don't, I don't know what that's about, but. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's also Chris Sanderson who says the main thing I remember with the Wonder Swan when I collected were the Final Fantasy editions that I always wanted but could never afford. Again, how expensive they are. Those ones actually aren't too bad, but they they were sold out. Um, they sold out really fast back in the day. Um, I read an article in Famitsu. I yeah. apologize. That was my bird. Yeah, your uh, bird also thinks it's expensive too. I guess. <laughs> um, there's an article in Famitsu um, about them like selling out at retailers instantly when it first came out. But they're they're not crazy now. You can get them complete for about a hundred bucks. So okay, you know, it's not not the worst thing in the world for a whole system. And uh, there's also Top Spot One Two Three who says I have a Wonder Swan and Swan Crystal and only a few games. I don't really import, so these are just about the only import items I have in my collection. And uh, there's also Martin Whitehouse who says I enjoyed the Digimon games on it, and I always wanted to play the first re-release of the original Final Fantasy III. But as you mentioned there, Kelsey, uh, that did get canceled, so uh, <laughs> unfortunately there is no way of playing that. Um, unless uh, you know, unless you maybe have like one of the um, one of the indie game makers anyway, maybe like make you know came out with like their own version. I don't know, but that would be cool to see. Yeah, that that's a for for me as someone who's you know interested in history and preservation and stuff. Um, I'm really trying to inch my way closer to this old Wonder Swan indie scene because I think there's probably, you know, we're, we're good on the stuff that was submitted to Cute for this Wonder Witch Grand Prix, like I said, with the exception of that uh, NES emulator. There are probably thousands of games created that may never see the light of day, which is um, sad and fascinating and I want to fix. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be cool like to see that, I don't know, that scene, I guess, get more recognition, uh, you know, especially if there is like enough of a bustling scene in there, because, you know, again, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, really, to kind of see what kinds of games that people were making on it, so... Um, but yeah, there's Jordan Thomas also who says here, I managed to snag one at a local trade event. Interesting little handheld with long battery life. It's a Japanese console, so as far as I know, no English translated games to play. I don't really play it, but I respect it. So <laughs> definitely a lot of respect there. Uh, Moritz, uh, Moritz Zeus, who says, I played through Final Fantasy 1, 2, and 4 on it as part of my pre-Final Fantasy 7 marathon. The Wonderswan color is a great piece of hardware compared to the original GBA, which is almost impossible to see on in all but perfect lighting and manages to get a lot less time out of twice the batteries. Then there's Michael Eric Setzer, who says, I have all three iterations of the Wonderswan, Wonderswan, Wonderswan color, Wonderswan uh, crystal. A uh, great little portable console that never got its just due. Further, you could see that the Wonder Swan line shares much of the Game Boy's DNA in its compact size, simplicity, and battery efficiency. And we definitely got into all that with your uh, very, very succinct, uh, detailed history there of the, of, of the console there, Kelsey. So. <laughs> um, then there's Chan Bai Sun, who says, played a few games. Favorite is SD Gundam G Generation Mono Eye played mostly anime games. So uh, as you mentioned there also, Kelsey, there's a lot of anime games on there. But do you remember playing SD Gundam G Generation Mono Eye? No, I haven't. I haven't played really any of the Gundam games because they're very text heavy. Yeah. So, you know, I booted them up and been like, "Ooh, pretty graphics. And then that's... <laughs> Can't read a damn thing, but pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think um, like from what I remember reading up on this particular game, it's a strategy game. So um, you know, we, you would imagine like a lot of Gundam games, they would be like on like more like fighting games or like they would be like I don't know like action games, like in a third person viewpoint or something like that. But uh, this one, I believe, is more of like a strategy game. So definitely one to check out there. Yeah, there's there's a lot of strategy games on the on the Wonder Swan. 
And uh, Ryan Sokolowski, who says, Wonderswan was great. It was cool being able to use it horizontally or vertically, and it had some great battery life off of a single double A. Didn't get much love in the States, though. So um, yeah, I, don't, I don't blame them, though. It didn't come out here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You love something you can't see. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a little tough, for sure. <laughs> um, but it's just like, as you mentioned before, like how you could change like, the orientation of like the screen and all that, which is really cool. And really, we've only just recently started seeing that again with the Switch, with the flip grip and all that stuff. So That's kind of coming back <laughs> exactly yeah yeah it all comes full circle uh then there's our buddy georgie fagundes who says sheer wonder intentional that the thing only took the one triple a battery so w- w- was it a triple a or double a battery that it took that may have just been a typo it's a double a uh, so even better. Um, so Kevin Rich, who says, when I moved to southern Japan in 2006, Wonderswan stuff was cheap and plentiful. You could get the system for under 1,000 yen, and games could easily be had for 100 to 500 yen each. It, it was very cheap for a long time. That was actually part of why I started getting into it. That's awesome, yeah. And like, so was it only just recently that the prices started to, uh, to skyrocket? In the last, like, five years, yeah, I yeah, would say. That makes sense, yeah. And uh, last comment we have here from Mike Maddox, who, are, who simply says, we miss you, Gunpai. So definitely all miss Gunpai Yokoi, uh, for sure. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's as you said there, Kelsey, like how uh, it would be very interesting to see what the games industry would have looked like if he was able to, you know, to still continue on and everything. Because obviously he spearheaded uh, like the gaming industry in so many ways, especially in the handheld market. And uh, he definitely had a uh, very, very unique way of like approaching and thinking that obviously greatly affected Nintendo and like how they, you know, how they approached making uh, making consoles in the future. So, um, so yeah, a n- nice little what if there. Uh, so yeah, that's our main topic. Uh, but I do have another game code here to give away. Uh, this is for Super Phantom Cat on Steam. So Super Phantom Cat is a retro platformer in which you explore quirky environments, clear colorful levels, solve the mystery shrouding the phantom world, and rescue your kidnapped little sister, Ina. So if that sounds like a jam, then definitely jump on this. Uh, this is, again, again, this is a Steam code. The code is KL7XGPQKECY4ZE8. Again, that's Super Phantom Cat on Steam. Enjoy, and if you do redeem that, definitely let us know at our podcast on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I just want to give a shout out here to to our patrons uh, who are $2 and up here. Uh, Francisco Limas, John Blanco, Mac V. Ball, Michael Butler, and Rosaline Dello Russo. So thank you very much, everyone, for helping uh, support the show. And if you too would also like to support the show, you can check us out at patreon.com slash artcast. And uh, Kelsey, thank you very much for coming on and talking all things Wonderswan. Uh, we definitely couldn't have done this episode without you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. This is a I always like to talk about it, even if you know. I mean, <laughs> I could talk about it all day. If you'd like to send us any feedback, opinions, retro games, or topics for us to cover, or anything at all, really, you can email us at ardcast at retrozap.com, and be sure to check out retrozap.com for all sorts of other amazing podcasts. It's your home away from home if you're crazy about Star Wars, Animaniacs, or pop culture in general. There's also us with Arcast, so be sure to find us on iTunes to subscribe, give us five stars, and tell your neighbors. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. So there's absolutely no reason to not follow another retro gaming podcast. And where can people go in order to find you online? Um, you can go to my Twitter, which is just at Kelslewin, K-E-L-S-L-E-W-I-N. Um, you can also follow the foundation I co-direct, the Video Game History Foundation at GameHistoryOrg. Um, I do have a YouTube channel, sort of. I haven't uploaded to it in a long time and probably won't for quite a while because 
I've got stuff to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> got pink gorilla, running a, obviously. You know. Running a nonprofit and a business at the same time is a lot of work. Um, but I'm still doing my research. And if you want to check out some of my old stuff, um, it's youtube.com slash Kelsey Lewin. Very cool. And if you want to find ArgCast on Twitter, we are at ArgPodcast. Same thing with Facebook, facebook.com slash ArgPodcast. And you can find me on Twitter at The Guilty Man. And yeah, that's ArgCast 194 in the books. And until next time, keep it retro. What's up, everybody? My name is Garrett Morlang. Hey, everybody. I'm JJ Prudhomme. And we are the Super Gamer Boys. And we are the preeminent video game podcast in the entire world. We are trying to take over the world with all of our comedy, with news and whatnot. And we are so excited to be members of the HP Video Game Podcast Network. Yes, we bring you uh, all the news you want to know every week. We bring you movie reviews, game reviews, uh, and all the goofs you want to hear. So come check us out every Wednesday on your favorite podcast service. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.